Hartnick, who was our guest today? Our guest today was Dr. Rachel Brenner. She is a psychology professor at Colorado State University. She got her PhD in counseling psychology, and she does a lot of research on topics like self-compassion, stigma, and around discrimination as well. And um, she does a lot more than that. That's just a, a brief sample of what she's done. But yeah, was there something that you really enjoyed from today's conversation, Brendan? I just think that tying in meditation to this whole conversation and um, you know how it can be beneficial, and then talking about negative self-talk and self-kindness and all of that, and then tying it up with a little bit of recommendation for people who may be considering going to grad school. I think she gives so much great advice. She's got great insight, and I think people are going to really enjoy it. Yeah, we really enjoyed this one. Uh, we hope you do as well. Um, please be sure to check out the links in the description. Dr. Brenner has awesome social media, um, and her presence on there is both entertaining and insightful. So we hope you enjoy this conversa conversation. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. All right, Dr. Brenner, thank you so much for joining us. Very happy to have you here. Great to be here. So if you could just for um, everybody listening and for us, just give us a quick background of you, some of your work you do, and maybe how you got into the field that you're in, and then we'll go from there. Okay. So as far as my educational background, I got my undergrad uh, bachelor of science in psychology at the university of Florida and with a minor in business administration. And then I did my PhD in counseling psychology at Iowa state university. Um, and then at the end of my PhD, I did my internship at the counseling center at Colorado state university's uh, health network at their counseling center. And um, after that, I worked as an, as an assistant professor at uh, SUNY Albany or a state university uh, in New York. And then after a couple of years, I came back here to Colorado State, which I'm really excited about. And the research that I do, I'm a bit of a research gadfly, but don't tell my tenure committee that. Um, so there are a few different areas uh, around research that I do. So uh, it largely focuses on stigma, but one area is the stigma around seeking help from a therapist and how that prevents people from seeking help when they need it and wanting to identify factors that contribute to that stigma, how that stigma works. and um, can we reduce some of that stigma and increase, most importantly, increase help seeking? I also do work around self-compassion or being kind to yourself when you feel like you're inadequate or you have failed in some way. And um, more recently, some work that I'm moving into focuses on LGBTQ um, mental health. And in one area of that actually will look at the relationship to, between discrimination and sleep and mental and physical health, which I'm really excited about. Let's see. And as far as what got me into the field, well, the field of psychology, I think, you know, most people have a, a really strong origin story. And I think I have a, there are a few places from which my interest in psychology came from, but the, perhaps the strongest one has to do with my older brother, Michael. He has autism or is autistic, I think is now the the proper language that's kind of shifted around throughout my lifetime, actually. But, um, and so he, Michael could read and write when he was two and then he stopped talking and he couldn't be around people. And to the point where my parents didn't even think he wanted to be around people. And because he could read and write, I, when I was a kid, I would go get, we had like a spelling board where my 
parents or like Michael would point to the letters. Sometimes he'd have a tantrum and I would get the board, but I didn't know how to read. So I don't know why I was even holding it up. Um, so I'd have to know kind of what he was communicating. And there was one time when Michael was four, where he went to a birthday party of one of like, I guess my friends or my mom's uh, friends, kids. And I played with the kids and Michael like sat in the corner, another room. He couldn't be around the other people is overstimulated. And as we got home and we're walking into the house, Michael looks up at my mom and says, mommy, I want friends. And, and at that point he had been spent a lot of his time being silent. And so that was really the first indication that he wanted to have friends that he wanted relationships because he would tantrum and get really upset uh, when we'd be around other people. And he wouldn't, because of it, it in part being a communication disorder was not able to communicate that he does want relationships. And there, and so we actually were one of the first, we were the first family. Mike was the first person in our County to do applied behavioral analysis therapy, which is now like the gold standard. But back then it was controversial because it was this newer thing. And from there, you know, now the joke is Michael won't shut up. Like, you know, he had a bar mitzvah and he, he talks a lot, um, which is a general Brenner family trait, but, um, throughout, but even so he can't really always communicate some of the deeper messages that he has. And there are a series of stories that I have where it's so clear that the way that he's thinking and feeling are similar to neurotypical people or people who are able to communicate verbally more broadly. Um, and so I spent a lot of time, Michael and I are very close. And so a lot of my childhood, um, our relationship was spent figuring out how to identify his needs and his wants in the ways that he was able to communicate them um, and pick up on things that were uh, deeper or different than the explicit words that he was stating. And as I got older, I realized that Michael is not the only person who has more happening under the hood and that the ways that we communicate the things we say don't really necessarily articulate our thoughts, or our feelings. And I think by tuning into Michael's nonverbals, I became really in tune with other people's nonverbals. And that's even reflected in the type of therapy that I do. Um, and so I think that that spurred my broader interest in the field of psychology and wanting to really understand how do people, how do people work and what's really happening for us and what are our needs and how are they met? And then as far as my specific research, um, a common thread involves stigma and uh, being kind towards oneself. And part of that passion, I think comes from my experience as a queer person and even before I knew, before I was aware of my attraction to women or to men, I knew a part of me was different, but I kind of pushed that aside for a long time. Um, but even so with the help-seeking stigma, part of the research talks about what we call self-stigma. So this internalized stigma. So I know that society holds, or I, I, people we know perceive a, a stigma towards, let's say people who go to therapy. And then if I go to seek therapy, then if I, I could, might feel that towards myself and that internalized stigma 
that's the the self stigma. So you don't necessarily even endorse the stigma that society holds, but when it comes to you, then all of a sudden that stigma comes up, and it's that same thing with uh, sexual orientation. Where, you know, for me, as soon as I learned what being gay was when I was younger, and and found out that people who weren't straight couldn't get married, I just thought that was just utterly ridiculous. And I'd always been passionate about that, but then when it came to me and realizing that I was probably not straight. I really, really, really struggled. Um, and, and I think part of it, even you can connect it back to, um, with Michael, I think I felt this need to succeed, to, to do well. Um, my younger brother is incredible. He's amazing. Um, and he, like me has ADHD and his interfered with his education more so than, than me. And so I think I felt this responsibility to, and I hate saying this out loud because I don't endorse what I'm about to say, but I felt like I wanted to give my parents a normal child. I felt like I just wanted them to have one where it just goes right. And, um, and so, and I always succeeded in, in school and, and these pieces and, um, you know, I always knew that I want to have kids. And so I want to give my parents nice Jewish grandbabies and all the things of just like giving them just what the, the picture that they had in mind when they, they had kids. And, and my parents are, are wonderful. They love me so much. Um, and so a lot of this was just me maybe wanting to have some control when I seeing all these things in my parents' environment, that's out of their control and out of my control, such as, you know, everything that, and Mike out of Michael's control, you know, everything that he goes through. And so um, and this was, I think I, I came out in around 2011 and things were a lot different 10 years ago than they are now. And, um, and yeah, and I really struggle with letting go of this idea that there was something about me that wasn't perfect, which is so ridiculous because if I could be straight, I would never push that, that button of like, okay, I want to be straight. Um, I love that part of myself now. And, um, but I think that that's where my passion for understanding how stigma, which is so unnecessary, but such a real lived experience impacts people's mental health and the importance of self-compassion and cultivating our ability to love ourselves more. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear people's stories and how they're doing the work that they do today and how intertwined those things are. Um, and something you touched on was that that I thought a, a lot about is that when we're born and we're growing up, I think there's like a general message of um, like, be kind to others. And it's always be kind to others. And like you're saying with that self-compassion piece, it's never be kind to yourself. No. <laughs> and that's, yeah, we're just missing a huge piece of it. Cause it's like, we're giving ourselves up to all these other, other people, but like, what are we giving into ourselves? And so, yeah, it's so awesome. The the research that you're doing around self-compassion, cause I think it's something that can easily get neglected often. Yeah. I love how you said that. I've never thought about that, that, and it's incredible really how much we get that message of to be kind to other people, but not to ourselves. Meanwhile, we get all these messages to fit into a certain box of like who we should be. Um, and without having that toolkit of self-compassion or, you know, whatever labels you put on it, um, 
it'd be nice if we were taught to have that muscle of applying it to ourselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where do you think? Cause I think there's some people too, that you just run into in life. I feel like that just naturally have that ability. It feels like at least whether it's natural or not, I don't know, but have you put any thought into like where maybe that mindset difference comes from? Like, why are some people able to like treat themselves with such immense kindness? And why are some people so hard on themselves? Is there something that we like are missing or is there something, some way we can be thinking about this? Yeah. So this is, and I'll say I'm not a child psychologist. So what I'm saying is I feel like as a professor, I need a disclaimer that a lot of this is what I'm going to say is conjecture. Um, this whole podcast and, is conjecture for everybody. Yeah, right. This is so, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Twitterverse, stay away from me. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> so I think of a few things. One is, um, and this is from someone, someone told me this who works with children, how some kids are like dandelions and some are like orchids where, you know, with orchids, you need the right lighting and the humidity and the, and the water and everything to grow whereas like a dandelion can grow like between a crack in the sidewalk. Um, and so there just are certain differences, I think, even genetically in how people operate. But that said, the environment is such a big, you know, a big factor. And I think um, having, I think that we don't teach people when they're, I think a lot of these get developed when they're young, which is why I started out saying like, I'm not a child psychologist. These are all tools that we develop uh, early in life. And I don't think parents focus on emotional regulation or most parents don't even know what that term is of, you know, how do you regulate your emotions when things go wrong and paying attention to how we talk to ourselves. And, um, yeah, I think, and there's just such an achievement orientation in, in our society. And I think that, so some people probably, maybe they experience that unconditional positive regard, uh, from their parents and caregivers, maybe, um, also, certain privileged identities experience less messages to contort themselves in a way that's different from who they are. So it's probably a, a number of different factors. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I, th- so one thing that comes to mind for me is like trying to determine. So I'll, I'll, I just like think about myself as like the example that I can actually like fully comprehend and relate to. So, cause I feel like I've got pretty good, positive self-talk, like all my life, I felt like that. And that's definitely, you know, like you, what you, even mentioned there was like certain privileged classes, like have just had less pressures on them to conform to society. And I've definitely been a beneficiary of that. There's no doubt about it. So there's that, but sometimes I'm curious too, like the genetics thing versus the, the, um, you know, my parents thing, I definitely got it. Like I definitely had it modeled in my parents. So I definitely could have picked it up that way. But on the other hand, maybe I was just always predisposed to like, maybe have that tendency. So like, I don't really know. And I'm like, and I don't know enough people to like, really have a, uh, a solid like stance on one side or the other, but yeah, it's so interesting how, cause like even people under the worst circumstances come out with unbelievably optimistic mindsets and it's like, it's so inspiring too. And then some people have the best circumstances in the world and come out with like, so heartbreakingly negative mindsets that I, you know, I, a term that Nick and I have thrown around a few times is like a, uh, 
a, well, I've thrown it around and Nick's kindly listened to me say it, but <laughs> it's, it's a, uh, an immature adaptation to like loss and grief. Um, so like the idea that if somebody has gone through a lot of struggle and been able to persevere through that, they've proven to themselves, they've earned it like truly. And like, almost like that self-respect that you kind of build for yourself in a way. Um, and on the other hand, maybe like, you know, I'll use the stereotypical, like rich kid who like has everything handed to them. Um, on the other hand, maybe would not have that self-respect for themselves because they haven't earned it and they haven't worked for it and they haven't gone through the struggle. And they're in that way, like when negativity and hardship comes up, they just haven't developed that piece of themselves to be durable when something like that happens. But that's like the closest thing that I've been able to like put to words that I can kind of um, feel about it. But yeah, that's what I feel. Nick, you got anything you want to? Any perspectives you would like to share on, on the matter? <laughs> yeah. I. So you, you do a lot of work with like self-compassion and help seeking and um, thinking about how there are some people who adapt really well to challenges and adversity and some people who really struggle. Um, and of course, like we're saying, there's several different factors that go into that, but just thinking about how there is a societal like idea that you're not supposed to seek help, that you're supposed to get through these things and be okay. And I just think about how that extremely widens this gap of if you're already not going to face well with adversity and you're also told that you're not supposed to seek help, then it's like, well, where's the middle ground? And if you're already doing well and you don't have to seek help, then that's okay. But yeah, what about those people who are, who are struggling and need that help? And they're told, like, don't be weak don't be soft. Like you should be able to get through this. Um, especially when they have people who can get through these things, telling them that as well, like I'd be fine in this situation. Um, so uh -huh. that's, it's tough. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, with the, that even links to that identity piece then, right. Cause men seek help less than women when they experience distress and it's a huge problem and men are not taught how to regulate their emotions, except to be angry. That's like the one unpleasant emotion you're allowed to show real sorry guys. That's, I don't envy that part of your existence. Other <laughs> yeah. parts, sure, but not that one. And, um, and this idea too, is that if you've always held this power, then doing something that can contradict that masculinity and, and feel like a, also a failure or, you know, flying in the face of or contradicting how men are supposed to behave then, and, and doing something that makes them, you know, seem weak. Um, but then also not having the resilience built by the hardships that might come with the lack of privilege, um, you know, can kind of be a recipe for disaster and in, and part of why that, you know, help isn't sought. Um, it's, yeah, yeah, that's I, really interesting. I saw a quote today that said that like passion is too often mistaken for aggression. And I was like, what? Mm. Like you can definitely be passionate and not show aggression. And I was just like, and it was a picture of like a football field and a coach like yelling at a player. And I was like, oh God, like, I don't think we understand what kind of underlying <laughs> messages we're, we're sending out here because it's pervasive. Well, it's I, I actually have a, an interesting thought and, you know, cause like what you just, the like whole scenario you just laid out about this quote, you just saw, I've got like this weird feeling lately that, um, that the field of psychology in a weird way that has in a lot of ways, I think in the last decade, like been on a 
crazy trajectory of value in society. Um, and I think the negative aspect that comes along with that is that people want to utilize it and manipulate it. And there's a lot of like fakers who come on the scene who like aren't really educated and uh, just a, a, a motivational, like trying to take a psychological approach, kind of a quote like that, like trying to like frame one thing as something just to like maybe validate their own side of the discussion. Right. Like do you two being, you know, in the field, see a concerning level of the, uh, what, like, like you kind of said, the Twitter, the Twitter psychologists, I'll call them, um, like popping their heads up too often where like they are providing too much recommendation or advice, but they're not truly educated on what they're talking about, kind of muddying the waters of like the good work that's being done by the real trained professionals. Yeah. So two thoughts come to mind with that. One is I see this a lot. So on Twitter, it's more of like the, I almost get nervous from like the professor sharks who I'm afraid that if I put a study out who or something out or talk about a finding that is not in my area, that's been contradicted as the replication price uh, replication crisis gets addressed that I'll, you know, be called out in an, un in an unkind way. Um, but I think with, with this idea of, of putting out incorrect information, uh, TikTok comes to mind, honestly, because there are people who just go on there saying, oh, psychology facts. If this is your favorite color, then X, Y, Z, or, you know, if you're experiencing this, here's this disorder that doesn't exist, but I'm going to tell you that you have. Um, and I think there are so many people who are misdiagnosing themselves through, through TikTok and are missing diagnoses that they actually have. I bet a ton of people with OCD are being overlooked, but that's a side rant for another day. Um, and so I think that that is definitely an issue in, yeah, the fact that that can spread so rapidly. And another one is that this also does happen in psychology when, you know, the methodology and our understanding of statistics are evolving rapidly and the re people reviewing journal articles or even conducting research. I mean, and I say this as a researcher myself that I, I am learning new things every day. And I'm sure there are things I published before I look back and be like, oh, I should have done that analysis differently. But I even think of that book that you've got behind you on grit. And that's one area of this, this trend that we see where people take a professionals also will take a concept and they'll package it and they'll make a ton of money speaking at business conferences about a construct that might not actually really exist. And so there's actually research that's debunked, that debunks the way that grit itself is structured and shows that a lot of it is just, uh, what is it? Um, this one's not my area of expertise, but Marcus Cruday at Iowa state did a great meta-analysis on this. Um, but essentially the grits, two parts. Oh, perseverance. Yeah. Like and like conscient conscientiousness as well. Right. Yeah. 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 And I don't mean that's a call at your bookshelf. It's a great bookshelf. I've got that Brene Brown book. I love it. Um, <laughs> and you know, so I think that it, it's, it's an issue kind of on, on both sides where whether it's a psycho or a, a psychologist or a researcher promoting their work uh, for, and, and I won't question uh, Dr. Duckworth's um, intent because I'm sure it came from a really good place or, you know, on TikTok people want to get, get a bunch of followers or views and they just put misinformation out there. So yeah, I see it from both sides. I don't know. What do you both, yeah. what do you notice? 
Well, I think just to add one more before I let Nick go, because I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I like to dominate the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I know I think what you said was so spot on to what I was feeling is that it's the lack of ability of the people giving the bad advice to realize the amount of nuance it takes to really understand somebody's situation. Like, like they got a diagnosis of something they talk to somebody who got to know them and then they want to put it out there. Like this applies to everybody now. And it's like, there's so many differences in circumstances that have to be taken into account. Like this is something that I continue to learn from Nick as him and I talk because he's more of the, the psychology professional in the room. And just from having conversations with, uh, with professors is just like, it's such a nuanced topic that to, like, there's no, you know, there's no armchair scholars in the psychology, field, <laughs> in the psychology field. Like you've got to be, you've got to be legit and you have to know your stuff. And, um, you know, just a kudos to you. Cause I think that the content you put out is a really valuable place for people to go to like really learn things. And like, and obviously there's some entertainment to it too. Cause you're, you know, <laughs> you've fun. got a, you got a good fun sense of humor on there. So, um, Thanks. Anyways, that was my take. Um, the people who just want to pander their diagnosis or their one thing that they heard off onto everybody else, like it can apply to anybody. Yes. And then, like you said, people want to try and diagnose themselves, WebMD it. And then all of a sudden they've got their <laughs> own false diagnosis. And then that's, you know, all of a sudden, if that's not right, and then you think you're broken. And again, we can tie this back into negative self-talk. Like people are then thinking that like, oh, this is what I have. The solutions aren't working for me. I must be worse than I thought. And like, it can just become this big repetitive thing. So I, I fear for those individuals who are one seeking help through their social medias as like their primary source of help. I think there's definite benefits that can come through social media, but then also the people who are putting out blanket statements on psychology when they don't really have a thorough understanding. And I officially hand the floor. over. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I like what you said. Um, and yeah, I've been doing kind of a lot of thinking about grit as a construct as well. And I I have read some of those studies that do talk about like kind of debunking it as, um, and I think it, it can be dangerous at times too. I've seen some researchers and psychologists talk about how like it kind of puts out this message that you need to negate kind of some negative emotions that might come up and you need to persevere through that. And while yes, I could see that there's a benefit to like perseverance, um, like we still need to feel what what is coming up for us and we need to validate that and accept that. Um, and I think what Brennan was talking about earlier about like what kind of like, do you think this is creating a toxic environment a little bit? I think uh, like your point was so true. And I don't think I thought about that with how there's people diagnosing themselves and then this like becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for people of that I'm feeling this way and it's true. Um, and then also I think about just like the general, I mean, this has always been around, but the general self-help kind of stuff. And it's people saying, oh, I experienced this. I got through it. You can too buy my program. You're going to change your life. And it's like, oh man, <laughs> that's your experience, right? Like, hopefully you can help other people out, but it's not going to be the same. Totally. No, absolutely. Whether it's like a symptom, which can come from so many different places or one aspect of what's causing the symptoms, you know, every person's subjective experience is so different. And to 
try to say, oh, do this thing. It'll help you because it helped me. And if it doesn't, then there's something wrong with you. It's just so it's toxic. Um, right. You know, and I think sometimes I, you know, I think about two, whereas I some I find myself getting irritated when I see certain pieces around the self-diagnosis. Um, I also try to remind myself of this reflects an unmet need in society, right? Like here are these people who, whether it's through access to care, stigma, simply not knowing or that knowing where to go, right? A lot of people, most people don't know the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Um, that here are, you know, we have Gen Z trying to diagnose themselves with ADHD or autism spectrum disorder, or I've seen people diagnose themselves with intrusive thoughts, which is not a diagnosis. It's a symptom of a number of different things. Um, and, you know, I also am concerned because of the pieces that are being missed, but also I'm like, well, why aren't these kids, these kids, this is now I'm feeling old. Um, <laughs> why aren't these people who I'm close to their age? Um, why aren't these, these people talking, have access to someone who can actually provide that information, you know? And I think that there's just a lack of understanding of where do you even go when you're feeling these different things, you know? Um, I mean, I say that now, maybe that makes me sound good, but internally when I see those videos, I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You know, this is OCD, like, oh gosh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe OCD. I don't diagnose over TikTok. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that I think, you know, is something that even just thinking about it now, I'm, I, I guess I want a bit more clarity. Um, would you say that the negative self-talk is like, a symptom of something greater or is it like, I'm sure the answer is sometimes and sometimes it's not, but like, I'm guess I'm trying to understand like when we, when you look at negative self-talk and um, being kind to oneself and things of that nature, um, are, are those like diagnosis and treatments that you're looking at? Like, as far as like, you need to talk kinder to yourself or is it a like an identifier to gather data, to have a greater understanding of like the whole, could you maybe talk a little bit more about how you, how you utilize them in your professional setting? Sure. That's a great question. So I think with what I was talking about with it being a symptom, uh, one example is intrusive thoughts. And I'll actually, I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, with, with the, with this, with the aspect of critical self-talk, that's first of all, and I can tell you've been talking to psychologists because I think you said like the answer is probably yeah, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. And and also everything occurs on a spectrum, right? You can read symptoms for any number of things and think that you have that because you just read it, it's different than when you see it when it's happening at a clinical level of distress, you know, level or when it's happening, you know, with well, with a given client. But with negative self-talk, it so that's the kind of thing that a lot of us engage in to some extent. And in general, the question is, does it work for you or does it not work for you? Um, the sad thing is a lot of people think that they need that negative self-talk and that's the thing that keeps them going when it's often the thing that holds them back. Typically in my work, I think that's what I pay attention to when I'm working with clients with the, within the context of the, the critical self-talk is that that's something often that's mediating or um, 
in a way, uh, like spurring on more, let's say anxiety or depression, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're not good enough, you know, at, at this, you're, you're always going to fail. Um, and so that might be something, uh, an intervention point, because if we could decrease that, that negative self-talk, then maybe you will try and apply for grad school or, um, you know, it could lift some of the the symptoms that are there. Um, so I don't look at that as specific, like diagnostic, but I think it's a process that can contribute to a lot of different symptoms that we see, but then also with, with interpersonal trauma, that's something that could be more prevalent. Um, and that can have to do with our attachment with our attachment styles or our relationship with caregivers and how we've learned to kind of communicate with ourselves, how we, how maybe our caregivers talk to us or the absence of talking to us or um, providing us with that unconditional positive regard. So um, sometimes the interpersonal trauma, then I'll see that be a little bit more prominent, but more so I think of it as an intervention point to decrease some of those symptoms. Got it. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Would you say then that um, like if somebody was identifying that they do engage in some negative self-talk, like you said, most of us do. Um, and how, how would somebody go about identifying for themselves if this is something that's productive or not for them in their process? Is it something that people should be seeking, you know, some guidance from their outside life or should they be, is it something that people can figure out like, man, this really isn't helping me. I need to stop. Or how, how should people go about that? That's a great question. I'll think for it. I'm going to think for a moment yeah. because I normally experience this from a clinical standpoint in the therapy room. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I identify it because people will out yeah, loud. You are the, the outside source that people mm-hmm. get this from. Right. Of course. Yeah. And in some ways, one way we could pick up on it is the people in our lives will tell us when we're saying these things, because often out loud, we say it without even realizing, you know, oh my gosh, that was so stupid of me. Or, you know, oh, I can't, uh, I, I know I need to take a break, but I have to study or else I'm going to fail. Um, and kind of that tendency of being rigid on ourselves. Um, and so I suppose one way is, you know, I guess I would, you wouldn't necessarily ask the people in your life, but um, as you could pay attention to what needs are not being met for me. And what am I doing and is it working? And chances are, um, and what's the role of, of self-criticism in those pieces? Like, did you stay up and keep studying rather than go to sleep on time because you felt like you had to push through it? And active self-compassion is taking care of yourself, taking care of your body and saying, okay, I have the right to relax. And that often will lead to us being more effective and studying better the next day. Um, so I think part of it is, um, maybe even writing out, you know, what were the, the behavior of a time when I didn't take care of myself, what were the thoughts I was experiencing? What were the feelings that I was experiencing in those moments? And then you might see a pattern of some self-critical thoughts. Um, but I don't know, what do you think, I guess, Nick or Brendan? Yeah. Um, Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's accurate. Yeah. I don't, I think it's tough just because, yeah, it's. Like, however those thoughts formed, it's always going to be different for each person Um, or however you started to do that. Like, it's going to come from a different experience. Um, So I guess just, yeah, asking 
like you're saying, like, what is this doing for me? Is this motivating me, but at a cost? And is it just damaging me? Um, like, should I be kinder to myself? And yeah, we don't ask ourselves those questions often enough, just in general. Mm-hmm. So something that I think about occasionally when it comes to like, you know, if you have somebody in your life who's got a little bit of negative self-talk is like, is that your voice or is that somebody else's voice that's still playing in your head? And cause sometimes I, I mean, again, this is the completely like me just trying to be a good friend side, not like in any way, clinical anything, <laughs> but like sometimes I've found that when I can talk to somebody and say like, Hey, like you probably don't actually think about yourself that way. Like that's just something you've been told and you're continuing to replay what somebody in your past has told you about yourself in your own head. And like, if, when you really look at yourself, like, you know, you've done X, Y, or Z and you should be proud of that. And like that, those negative thoughts you're having maybe aren't something that you really even believe. Mm. And I really enjoy the statement and I don't know if it's a uh, one that is applauded in the, in the psycho- psychology community, but, um, is like, if you, if a friend talked to you, the way you talk to yourself, you wouldn't be friends with them. And I think it's just like, I mean, I, I think that's a good way of, of checking your negative self-talk as far as like for myself, like if I ever catch myself with some negative self-talk, I'm like, man, would I like it? if a friend was critical of me in that way, and obviously presentation matters, how are they, how are they saying it to me? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, th- that's kind of the, the two things that I think about when for practicality in my own life, when I think of the negative self-talk thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why sometimes having those conversations and actually hearing what you're thinking out loud can help you identify, wait a minute, that's really harsh you know, and then, but sometimes you can't even recognize it because we're in our own heads, but I love the way you set up. Would you say that to someone else? And that's even on the flip side with self-compassion is there's an exercise of writing a self-compassionate letter and writing it from the perspective of, um, like your friend writing it to you going through that. And like this that. idea of it's so much easier to do that. Something else that came to mind as far as, you know, before you asked to, how do you identify if you're even, if that's some, if self-criticism is something you need to pay attention to, um, And then something, but something you can do once you want to pay more attention to that is really mindfulness meditation can be such a great exercise because what you're doing, um, you know, mindfulness is the healing is not necessarily from being in a space of, I have no thoughts, but you know, if you've ever meditated and everyone's experience is a little bit different, but there's usually at some point, a burst of just trying to think about 16,000 other things for some people happens towards the end of the meditation for some people like me, it's more in the beginning. Um, and, but it's, it's when you catch yourself like, Oh, I just went on this tangent thinking about what I have to you know do or whatever, wherever your mind went. Okay. I'm going to smile, congratulate myself on the practice and bring myself back. And that trains us to notice. And so it's like a muscle and, Um, and then during our regular day, then we become more aware of our thoughts. And then even in that moment, you know, I one time went to a, uh, I took a course on mindfulness meditation and, and they talked about the instructor, Dr. Ellens, he talked about, uh, like having, uh, like lifting weights and that we've had this self-critical muscle that's just been pumping iron, like for a long time. And 
mindfulness often, it's not necessarily like even like pushing our arm down, but we're just pausing and it'll go back and then you pause. And then over time that weakens it. And so I think, um, and I say, this is someone I go through, I go through phases where I meditate. I should do it every day. I really need it. Um, and I always feel better, better when I am doing it, but part of why I don't like it is because I want to be, you know, in doing mode. And that's the reason that I should sit in being mode for 20 minutes every day. But, um, that's also a great way that you can engage in that. Um, another way is if you get your friend to name when you are self-critical, like people close in your life, like that's usually Nick, what I do. Being with negative. <laughs> yeah. Like, Hey, don't talk like that to my friends. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I do that with my clients. I, I, and, 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 you know, in a couple sessions, I, I'm like, Oh, I just, I pretty much am on autopilot because now that I've made those process comments, they catch themselves saying those things. And so I think, you know, there are different ways that just bring our attention to what we're saying can make such a big difference. Um, and then of course the buy-in that we want to decrease that self-criticism is important too. Yeah. I think the mindfulness piece is so important and I'm so with you that like, whenever I do it, I'm like, Oh man, this is, I needed this (laughs) and then I'll go for a break and won't return to it for a really long time. And then I'll come back and I'll be like, Oh, this is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we've been kind of talking about like negative self-talk and I know you've talked a little bit about self-compassion, but I'm curious about like your, your work and research and things that you've learned throughout this process of really learning about self-compassion. Yeah. So it's been an interesting journey. Um, so an area that I nerd out with in research is also psychometrics or, or measurements and Um, so the way, when we measure something like depression, we might say, oh, I created these items and they reflect depression, but how do we actually know that they did? Or here's measure of depression and anxiety. Well, how do we know that, that these are two different constructs being measured? Um, and what's cool is that there are ways you could test that to also then test the theory uh, underlying the construct, like depression and anxiety are two different things. You can test that based on how people respond to those items. So with self-compassion, my work has been that intersection of measurement and theory. So really understanding what is self-compassion, what's the structure of self-compassion, and then how does that relate to different aspects of mental health? And so um, part of my beginning into self-compassion was looking at the self-compassion scale, which is the most widely used measure of self-compassion. And that was introduced by Dr. Kristen Neff in 2003, it was published. Um, and she has a lot of expertise around um, self-compassion and, and Buddhism. And so she did this remarkable thing of bringing over that Eastern wisdom to the Western world. And the, and like I said earlier, the way that like our understanding of statistics and psychology and the intersection of those things have evolved a lot. And so the way that that scale was created, the methods could have been better. And you could say the same thing about some of the work I've done. And I'm sure, gosh, 20 years from now, who knows what I'm going to think about the work I published. Right. And so what I've learned, and there are still, there still continues to be debate over really what self-compassion is. This is the most prominent uh, perspective currently is that there are these six areas of self-compassion. So there are these kind of three um, self-warmth or the the positive self-compassion parts and they each have uh, like a counterpart. So the the first one that 
comes to mind for most of us is self-kindness. So being kind in the face of failure or inadequacy to ourselves. Um, and then the opposite counterpart is self-judgment, being judgmental towards ourselves. And then other pieces that are less intuitive to Western philosophy, which is why it's so great that Dr. Neff did this work, is um, common humanity. So this idea that we're not the only ones suffering in our pain. Other people experience this. And so the opposite of that, um, I'm like blanking on the name. Like, oh, yeah. But I was go, just going to say, it's it. like when you think Isolation. that like nobody, nobody's under, nobody understands this pain. Mm. Exactly. Isolation. Yeah. That's, that's, yep, exactly. Yeah. So no one understands me. I'm the only one going through this. And then uh, the third one is mindfulness. And the mindfulness itself is also a really interesting multifaceted construct. Dr. Neff's conceptualization of mindfulness within this context is less about connection to your internal experience and more about mindfulness with your environment around you. So, and connecting with everything also happening outside of your body, whereas over-identification where it's like your pain is the center of what's happening for you. And so those three components are really central to self-compassion. And so what happened was um, Dr. Neff created this scale and came up with, which is really common, like these reverse score, the intention of these items being reverse scored of self-judgment, isolation, and over-identification. But through this thing called factor analysis, uh, she found that those positive and negative components were separate, which is also um, fits with different psychological theories like bivariate plane theory, this idea that just like you, you can be happy and sad at the same time, um, or you can not be happy, but it doesn't mean you're sad, right? And so this idea that positive and negative don't necessarily happen on like a unidimensional continuum. Um, but because of how some things were carried out methodologically, again, different time, uh, the it was kind of purported that, okay, there are these like six different areas and they all go into this one self-compassion score. So you take those items, you just, you just reverse score them. It's fine. You make this one self-compassion measure. But like I said, happiness and sadness are not on a continuum. And so we did some work with the scale and, and what we're finding, and there's a debate and, and, you know, if Dr. Neff listens to this podcast, I'm sure she won't agree with me. Um, and that's fine. Cause that's part of the, the process of research and, um, that, there are these two factors. So those three positive things go to the self-compassion factor. And these other three things go to um, a self-coldness factor. It's also been called, there've been um, uncompassion. I think it's been uh, uncompassionate self-responding and self-compassion responding of, they've been called different things. Um, part of why it's important to, so, so that's part of what my research has showed is that these are two different things that they, they coexist and they, operate, um, they do a bit of a dance with each other, but they are different. And why that matters is because the research that's looked at the relationship of self-compassion with these different outcomes, um, it, the score might not be quite accurate because half of the items are something different. And so what I found in, in one study or a couple studies for my dissertation, for example, was that, um, 
when you control for, when you put self-compassion and self-coldness as predictors of well-being and distress, so you control for the impact that that each other have on each outcome, that self-compassion's relationship with distress becomes non-significant, but they both are directly related to well-being. But interestingly, or I think is interesting, um, we found uh, what's called an interaction effect. So that self-compassion, although it didn't hold statistical significance over and above self-coldness directly in the relationship with distress, its impact was on how strongly self-coldness relates to distress. So those who had higher, who reported higher self-compassion, the relationship between self-coldness and distress was much weaker. Um, and so that points to the importance of self-compassion as an intervention point. So when you ask, well, what do you do in the face of being self-critical, then you then being self-compassionate is still going to be important. And the idea is that it could be really hard to reduce self-coldness. Like we've been talking about for a lot of this conversation, these are things that are ingrained in us from an early age. So if we were to say, okay, we're going to decrease your being judgment judgmental on yourself, like I can't do that in three sessions. Are you kidding me? You know, um, but I can help clients and give them some self-compassion intervention skills while we work more long-term on unpacking and dismantling the pieces underlying that uh, self-coldness. But what's also cool is that because that, that um, for people who might be in a place of, okay, I'm not distressed, but I want to cultivate more fulfillment in my life, then the focus doesn't have to be on self-compassion as an interruption of the self-coldness. It's that that direct relationship held up. So that's some of the work that uh, I found with with self-compassion is how do we measure it and what is it theoretically and then how does it relate to these different constructs and that it's just been a little bit different um, or research is pointing that it's a little bit different than maybe what we originally thought, but the central message that self-compassion is so important, that is still strongly supported. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it stands to logic too that it would be much more dynamic of a of a process than right. Like, and I think that's always like such a good way of making an initial you know judgment of a hypothesis is like logically does this hold true? Like when we think about it, and it's like yeah, like everything as you were just explaining that like as the um, was it self compassion or self kindness one of them, and then it disassociates their the severity of the other two. Like yeah. that does kind of make sense logically that when like the certain, the way you perceive things and the way you see the world in like, when it comes to like these different things is going to be so variable, right? Like, so just to to think that we could just put this on a single X axis of like, and number it and just put you on the continuum does seem kind of silly. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And another piece too, is that people can be both self-critical and self-compassionate, right? Like, and it might seem counterintuitive, but you have those people who really do care about themselves and they'll do the different exercises and they're like, okay, I'm not the only person that's suffering. But then at the same time, they might be really hard on themselves and be high achievers. Um, And if those both can coexist, then we know that it's, you know, more intricate. And there also might be some people who are like, you know, I'm neither of those, <laughs> you know, I just exist in the world and I sometimes envy those people, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That is, I really appreciate your work in like specifying and breaking down those variables. Cause I think that's so important because 
yeah, on a general sense, like, yeah, so it's, seems like if you're not as self-compassionate, it'd be a bad thing. And if you're more self-compassionate, it'd be a good thing. But yeah, there's layers to that and there's different things that go into impacting that. And so, um, it's really cool to hear about all the different parts of it. Cause yeah, we just don't talk about this stuff, you know, it's unfortunate. I know it's like for all the time that we spend in school on things that we don't necessarily carry with us, I would love, like, I, I don't, do any research with K through 12, but in another lifetime, I would just love to be a part of a movement that develops a curriculum that teaches people just basic, important psychosocial skills and, you know, mindfulness, self-compassion, interpersonal, you know, uh, processes and emotion regulation. And, you know, but instead we go, here we are, we, but we do things like this, which is great because if not, then that's when people had to TikTok and diagnose themselves (laughs) with like daydreaming disorder or whatever the heck. (laughs) Yeah. Which I have seen. Oh my gosh. I have not seen that one, but I'm sure I'll see it soon now. <laughs> now that we've talked about it. You're yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that like writing yourself a, a self-compassionate letter is, is one way to really start to promote something like that. Is there anything else that you've really found to be helpful um, maybe in your work, but also just for yourself through your research? Yeah. Um, that one's one of my favorites. And if you do that one, you can, anyone watching, you can Google it and get the the correct instructions. And it starts out where you write from the self-critical place and then you end up responding. Um, mm. You know, I think it really depends on the situation. Sometimes, you know, for me, I sometimes I'll recognize that I need external validation, which is not something I necessarily encourage that, but occasionally, especially like in grad school, you know, I needed positive feedback from my advisor and, and he, he is incredible. I have, I, I love uh, David and, um, and I remember there was a point where I was doing well and he just didn't even realize that I needed to know that he was proud of the work I was doing. And, um, and at that point that I hadn't been in grad school long enough to even be able to validate that part of myself well. And so when I, when we had that conversation and he gave me that feedback, that went a long way. And so I think sometimes that's something that I'll do if I'm in a place where I'm like, all right, I'm being self-critical. I need to talk to someone whose input I trust because um, right now the, that part of me is just not strong enough, but more importantly um, there are then I will focus on building that muscle over time. And actually Pema Chodron has a book on, on how to meditate that I really love because in it, she uses different components of meditation um, to cultivate empowerment, to cultivate self-compassion. And so I found that to be really helpful. Um, therapy has been great. I would be in therapy if I could, if I could, I would just do therapy until I die pretty much. Um, but I don't know. I guess I'm kind of thinking out loud of things that have been helpful. But I don't well, know I really love the meditation guys, yeah. one too. Cause I think that for me, like you guys, I, I don't use it every day. It's not a regular practice, but there's definitely stressful moments where I'll turn to it. And one of the big, like for the, a long time, I was just like, I don't know how people get something out of this. Like I just couldn't figure it out, but I was, and I've tried like anytime a free app comes out on meditation, I'll download that sucker and try it. <laughs> and 
And one of the, one of them, and I can't remember who it was, but it was like, it was an absolute game changer for the way I was thinking about it. And you kind of alluded to it too, is that your mind is going to go off in a million different directions. And I think this even comes back to the self-compassion and self-kindness piece is that I felt like the best benefit I was getting at the beginning when I was, because like, right, you, you sit here, you're thinking you're supposed to be like this calm Zen person. And then like your mind is thinking about like, oh, like tomorrow's Tuesday, what kind of tacos am I going to (laughs) have? But, but like the intention of sitting there trying to meditate, knowing full well that you are going to lose your focus and then knowing full well that the minute it happens, you're just going to forgive yourself and go right back to it. It's like that self-forgiveness piece. And it's like, okay, I'm coming back and I'm good. Like it doesn't, it completely takes the stress out when you go into it thinking like, I will, I will come out of my meditative state a hundred times in this meditation. And it's only going to be 10 minutes, but I'm also going to really forgive myself for stepping out of that and bring myself back to it when I need to. And that for me has been a really significant um, game changer on the utility of meditating, because I think it even like to what you said, it works the muscle of the self-forgiveness, right? Cause like, then I can go into something else and be like, okay, well, like I pretty much could have called it that so-and-so would have happened because, you know, that's just the way it works. Like it's going to happen all the time. Right. So forgive myself, come back to it and like continue to move forward in a positive way without beating myself up for it. So I think that's been a good one for me on the like mm-hmm. ways to practice it in myself. That's the little one that I, I turn mm-hmm. to every now and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. And that's why, you know, when I, with my clients, I always will tell them, I'm like, listen, I hate meditating and I love the benefits. And that's why I do it. You know, by the end of, by the time the timer goes off, I, I do like where I am. And when I would take this, the meditation class, it was about 50 minutes away from where I was and I'd be driving home around sunset and it would just like never more beautiful sunset. Cause I did feel more connected, you know, but really the benefits I, I always still have in, in my, in my head, the, my teacher saying, you know, when your mind wanders, smile, congratulate yourself on the practice and bring yourself back. And, you know, I think that's also that piece of like needing more psychoeducation out there so that we understand why we're meditating. Cause we all think, Oh, it's, we have to be in this Zen place and I'm not doing it right. And this is so uncomfortable. And it's like, yeah, that's right. Being present with yourself is uncomfortable and, and let's, you know, do that in a way. And I love how, like you said, that process can really cultivate that self forgiveness and self-compassion. It's really wonderful. Yeah. And the process of that, Tell me if I'm I'm wrong about this, but it sounds like the process of the self-compassion letter is like a meditation in that, like when I think about meditation for myself, um, I've really taken the approach or I've really enjoyed and found beneficial, uh, like going for a walk in like a quiet neighborhood um, or doing something that is kind of just mindless. And then working through, like really thinking about what is on my mind and then really working through that. And it sounds like that with the self-compassion letter, you talk about like what you're being self-critical about um, and then work through to get to the point where there's a resolution of maybe I shouldn't be so critical. Maybe I should kind of appreciate myself a little more. Yeah. And I think, you know, with the letter, because you're, you're, and this is where I, I'm blanking on if it's you, if you're writing it as if your friend told you that 
or I think you actually are writing it to yourself as if you were like your friend or a coach or as a mentor. Um, and that goes back to that piece of how sometimes we need from other people what we can't cultivate towards ourselves. Um, but I think in what you're talking about of like having space to just let those thoughts be and to really see what's going on and then deciding how do you want to work with that. Um, and I don't know if this totally fits with you because I remember at least what I've been taught is when you're meditating, once you catch yourself, don't engage with those thoughts. But then after the meditation, that's when you think you, you sit in and reflect on, okay, where was my mind, you know, going and usually in a more present place where you can then work with that. But it sounds like, you know, then for you, when you're out going for a walk, like that is that space for you when you are more present um, and having kind of that connection to the environment around you um, might give you enough of that grounding to work with those thoughts. I don't know. I'm kind of just speculating out loud here. I don't know. What do you think? No, I like your approach on that. I think there, that's something definitely I'll try is like letting these thoughts come and then being like, Oh yeah, maybe that one came like six times. <laughs> maybe I can <should> think <laughs> about that a little bit and sit on it. Yeah. But there's the common, like you were saying, there's the common, you know, med guided meditation app, like guidance of like, you know, bring yourself back to the breath. And that's like, I think what the goal of that is, right. It's to, okay, you had the thought, but there's something, you know, I, I also heard meditation. I don't know if this is like a widely accepted descriptor of it, but is the, it's like the art of doing of like stillness and doing nothing. Yep. And I think that that's like a, you know, for me, like just coming back, thinking about the breath as granular as I need to. Sometimes I can just like sit there and be like completely calm and like really relaxed. Sometimes I literally have to think about like the feeling of air touching my nose and mm -hmm. like just get so granular with it. So yeah, it's a very um, interesting process, but I think the, like that recentering, like you were saying, and like you were just saying that we like you don't have to think about why you were having those thoughts in the moment you can reflect on that after but mm -hmm. it's a you know always just bringing yourself back to that like conscious of nothing i guess like moment right absolutely yeah yeah and it's actually not even something i intended for this conversation to go this way when we sat down to have this interview, but like, I literally brought the book meditations by Marcus Aurelius <laughs> with me in here and like <laughs> writing these letters to yourself and like meditating and all this stuff and like the stoic philosophy and all this stuff. And I had read this quote about like having, you know, not remembering it just says, remember to on every occasion, which leads you to, to vexation, to apply this principle, not at this, not that this is a misfortune, but this, that to bear this nobly is good fortune. And just like in a lot of what we've been talking about so far, I've been thinking about that quote, because for me, like really what that boils down to is having perspective on the situation that you're in. Where, where do you frame like somebody's perspective in and like, how do we cultivate perspective when we think about like the self-kindness? Cause you know, when I think about a lot of the, the times where I had every opportunity to like be down on myself or, you know, to feel sorry for myself, I've always, um, you know, again, this could go back to childhood, but I've always kind of had this perspective that like, well, it could be way worse. So like, and you know, you know, there's 
there's a good way to do this and there's a bad way to do this. And sometimes the good way to do it is the hardest way to do it. But like, sometimes we just have to like try and like really push for that. So do you use the term, maybe you use a different term when you're thinking about perspective, but um, where do you kind of frame that in some of the work that you do? That's a great question. You know, a few things come to mind. One is this piece around like validating each person's experience, right? Cause the, it could be worse, could be a really helpful thing. And that's something that I certainly use for myself. And for some people, they're going through something that maybe they've experienced um, a lot of invalidation around. And so, you know, I think about what does each person need who I work with or for myself in a given moment, what do I need? And but something that comes to mind is this, this idea of holding both, um, which is said by psychologists and other mental health people and just people who exist in the world in different ways. Um, but this dialectical that, that two realities could exist at once. And I think COVID is a great example mm -hmm. of, for some of us anyway, you know, where the, you know, like this, I mean, the last 12 months have not been ideal. Um, I've definitely been depressed in different spouts and have probably been mildly depressed or less motivated for like the majority of it. Um, and at the same time, I also hold a lot of gratitude, which has been confusing and at times really healing of reminding me like, okay, right now my situation is I really hate that I'm in my house all the time and I'm in front of screens every day. Um, and I have a salary job. You know, I don't need to put myself in a health risk situation. Um, you know, I've been saving way more money than in the past, whereas other people are, um, you know, financially really struggling as a, result, as a result of COVID. And so at different moments, I need to give myself different things. So there are times when I might be feeling down and I'm like, you know, um, okay, it could be worse. And you hear these things I feel grateful for. Um, and then there are also other times where I need to give myself permission to grieve the experiences that I'm not having and acknowledge that, you know, this is just, this is a harder time and, um, working in front of a screen all day, it can be depressing and like, that's okay. So I think it's about meeting where you are and holding both of those pieces and anchoring yourself onto whichever one you need to in, in a given moment to get through the current obstacle or barrier. Yeah. I think that's great. Cause I even just like, as you're explaining that, I'm like, wow, like, yeah, if I tried to push the thought of like, you know, it could be worse onto somebody else who like maybe doesn't share, it can feel extremely dismissive of their, of their emotions and their feelings in that moment. And that can maybe potentially be more damaging than having, like, I love the idea of holding both and like recognizing that both are true. Um, yeah, that's, I really like that. Yeah. And you said the word confusing, which I think like really resonated with me and yeah, always just putting words to how I've been feeling is so helpful. And I think that's definitely something that's been coming up a lot um, for me personally is like, yeah, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for my current situation. Um, and at the same time, yeah, I haven't been feeling the best, like nobody really has. And so there's that confusion that we feel and it's, yeah, holding both. Uh, it's that's it beautifully said. <laughs> Thank you for those words, really, because I, I do think that that's what a lot of people have been feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll even take this opportunity to to hammer that home for anyone listening. Like that that idea of holding both applies in so many situations, 
And I think we like to have a black and white or like a rigid view of how things are, you know, and even with, um, when you go to therapy, often you might end up talking about your parents. Right. And what I'll tell my clients is like, you know, no parents perfect. And so parents might have something that were damaging and they could have been incredible parents or be incredible parents. And you can have a friend who maybe is not even in your life anymore because that relationship became toxic. Um, and it could be someone who really loved you and cared about you and also who really hurt you. And it doesn't mean that they have to be in your life. And also doesn't mean that they don't, but this idea that these, these different realities could exist at, at once. And I think we want to kind of make people good or bad or, or situation, you know, right or wrong, but really there's often both those pieces. And the more that we can create space for sitting with that and tolerating that ambiguity, it just in general is like a healthy, um, is good, is great for mental health. And it's also a really hard skill and not one that we're taught. (laughs) Completely agreed. Yeah. And I think this could be a good segue into, um, your, the research that you did on romantic breakups. Because mm-hmm. I thought that that article was really insightful and I had only heard kind of about that in one other setting. And I don't think I would have heard about it if I wasn't in the field of psychology. Um, so like the idea of like content valence and then um, like positive and negative emotion, I guess, could you just share a little bit about what your research was in that? Yeah. Topic? And this is honestly probably like my favorite study that I've done. Um I was just talking about this with someone this week. I might go back to it one day if I could fit it. My tenure committee won't think that I have 16,000 different areas, but (laughs) so the, the basic idea, uh, so there's not a ton of research on romantic relationship breakups, considering how common that they are. And beginning of grad school, I was reading some of this literature and there was, there were some studies that might look at, okay, what's the extent that someone's ruminating about a breakup or about the ex relationship? And they found that that really ex-relationship rumination was linked with breakup distress, depression, other lack of closure, things like that. And in the conclusions of the paper, they would say that, okay, so because of this, you know, a clinical implication is to help people think less about how hurt they are and less about the pain in the breakup. And I was reading that and I'm like, wait a second, my experience of breakups personally and with my friends is part of the pain is that it's difficult to let go of the positive memories of the, the ex relationship. And so research, so I did some more digging in and I looked at uh, different fields, including ones that were doing like fMRI research and the, and studies have shown that there's a drug addiction um, kind of neurological uh, like blank on the word, but neurologically things play out like a drug addiction. So when you're in love and we think about how much we love our partner, our brain, the, the, the ventral tegmental area, uh, the, the reward center of the brain gets like a huge hit of dopamine. So it's pretty much like you're on Coke. Um, and then those going through drug withdrawal, um, or going through a breakup, the brain, that part looks like when you're going through drug withdrawal. And so keeping that And then there's also research that shows that when we think of a memory, uh, especially ones with, so you're talking about the content balance, like the, the, the extent to which emotion is prevalent in the memory, the stronger the emotions attached to it. Um, when we sit in that memory, we re-experience it and our brains light up in the same ways as if we were experiencing that in real time. So thinking about it from this addiction perspective, 
if you're withdrawing from a drug, you need to not inject that drug or snort that drug or whatever the different ways the kids these days, I don't know. I like saying kids these days. It makes me feel (laughs) wise. Um, but that, um, that if you connect with the positive memories and those memories kind of give you that cocaine, that love drug, then that's going to interfere with your withdrawal process and you're moving on. And so in my view, the positive thoughts would actually be hindering. Whereas normally we're told that thinking of positive things is, is good. Um, but this seemed to be an instance where, well, maybe that's not the case. And so connecting it to my, this, this is actually where my, my passion for measurement came from because I went to my advisor with this idea and he said, well, one way we could test this is through measurement because we can come up with a measure, come up with items for these positive memory subscale, negative memory subscale, have participants respond and use factor analysis and other um, analyses to see, are they actually operating distinctly and how do they relate to different constructs? And so what we found was that positive, thinking of positive thoughts and memories from your ex-relationship and the negative memories, they, they are different constructs. They function differently. So it's not just a, oh, thinking about ex-relationship measure, but these are two subscales. They're highly correlated because when you're thinking, when you go through a breakup, you're just thinking about your ex like all the time. Um, and then when we looked at relationships with different constructs, what we found was that they both were linked to the negative aspects like breakup distress or negative adjustment or lack of closure. But um, when we put them together in a regression and controlled for their shared variance, we found that the positive memories um, were linked to or negatively associated with some of the moving on constructs, whereas the negative memories actually were linked to greater moving on. Um, and so that kind of presents a, an example of where there's uh, an exception to what positive memories can, can serve. And I think eventually when there's closure, then that's different. And I would love if I go back to that work, you know, now I can think about a positive memory with my ex from high school and, and that's a warm memory. Whereas after he and I broke up, I would not have, you know, wanted to have thought about that and would have brought up a lot of pain, but when you don't have that closure, um, yeah. And so that, that is an example of whether or not you can hold both, they both exist. And so learning and really learning to let there be space for, okay. Um, so back to, yeah, Nick, what you were saying that something could remind us of, of an X and could be a positive memory, but that doesn't mean that we, we have to be with them and, uh, sitting with also the parts of the relationship that weren't so great. Um, like those both could coexist. They could have been great. And I think that's what makes moving on from breakup so difficult. And I even think of, you know, I have a partner now, um, and I went through, like I had my heart broken a year ago and recently something reminded me of this person. And, um, and I found myself missing them, even though I'm so happy to be with my partner. It's just like a memory came up and it's like, oh yeah. And then also other memories came up and I, that I'm like, okay, you know, that's why I'm glad that I'm not with this person. And so I think that actually, I hadn't thought about that, Nick, of the holding both those pieces, but I think that's so important to when you're going through a romantic breakup. And that could be one of the hardest times to really exercise that skill, you know? Yeah, it, it definitely feels like it is, but just, yeah, naming it that like, man, what do I really miss about this person? Oh yeah, that was fantastic. And it's like, okay, well, but also like, why did this happen? Like there has to be some type of reason, right? 
Um, and so acknowledging that, yeah, I, when I like dove into the research that you did on that and just started reading the article, I was like, wow, I, it's something that everybody can relate to, right? Like people just know that feeling. Um, but again, it's just something that I guess doesn't get realized because it doesn't get identified and talk, talked about. So, um, yeah. And, you know, I was just having a conversation this week with a couple of grad students about this. Um, and it's, and they were pointing out, like, you light up when you talk about this, you know, and I really do love it. And I think um, a, a potential realization that I had in this conversation was that, you know, a lot of people conducting these peer reviews are professors who are often like married and for some of them have been married or partnered for a long time. And so they haven't experienced a heartbreak in, in quite some time. And I remember um, like even when I was getting my IRB approved, some of the the feedback I got from the re- the reviewers of so the IRB being the institutional or like viewers institutional review board who approves that your study is ethical and and what have you. Some of the questions they had, I was like, "What like what planet are you are you on here?" You know, and I and even when um and the the article got published in JCP, which is the top counseling psych journal, um and fortunately like. Two of the reviewers really loved it. The editor on it was a fan, but there was one reviewer who just clearly did not think that it mattered. Um, and I almost wonder if part of why the a lot of the enthusiasm that I get when I talk about this, some comes from professors who are excited by the theoretical, like putting all those pieces together of the interdisciplinary work. But also when I talk with younger people, whether it's like people not in academia or grad students or younger faculty because a lot of us are more closely connected to those experiences. Um, and that's just a side thought that I've been having of like, oh, has that been something that, that can influence, you know, it's like what's relevant to the researchers, just like why, you know, different um, identity-based things are only just now starting to really gain traction in research because it's been like the straight white cis male ivory tower for such a long time. So I don't know, that was a side, a side thought, but. No, right. Yeah. Since they haven't experienced it or haven't been around it for so long, holding both isn't a thing anymore. It's just one side, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you were you guys able to gather data on I know you said the when you're reinforcing these positive happy thoughts, you get like this drug addiction patterned um reaction. Was it a very clear difference when you are thinking of like the negative thoughts that it is a non sim like it's drastically different like it does not resemble drug addiction at all or is there still some probably depending on the freshness of the breakup that it's probably there's probably a certain level of it but muted or so yeah, I'm just curious about that side it's of it. been a it's been a while so I published this paper in 2015 so it's been a while okay. since I've read this work, um, but vague recollection, um, were a couple things. One. So in the study where they looked at people who experienced a breakup, um, and they, and they had them talking through what they were thinking about. Some of them floated to, I was thinking about the pain, but then I thought about the positive memory and then, um, and so there was actually that process was, was happening right there in the room. And this was not the center of the article. It was just something I picked up on in, in reading that. And I think there may have, but I, I would need to check, but there may have been some, like a mix of like ultimately look like out of a, with, a withdrawal response, but there might've also been some like of the, in, the injection response uh, happening because people's memories floated there. And I do know um, there was a study uh, where people were 
told to think about, I think it was with the, I think it was romantic partners. Again, it's been a while, but the, the, the breakup and they really stuck to that. And they found that um, there was like a social rejection part was like really strong and also physical pain Um, parts associated with physical pain were also let up. So there really was that distinction, but also potentially that pattern with that first study of like it, of them both kind of happening at the same time. I realize I'm not sure if that answered your question. I kind of, no, it does. Kind of when I think that. one thing it, it reinforces too, is like, you know, as I turn back to my trusty logic test, um, you know, what, like when you're going through a breakup, what is the first things your friend want to do? Take you out to get your mind off of it and talk shit about your ex. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so like, and like, those are probably two, like, like being the people who are not in, obviously there's a, a clear, like instinctual almost nature to know that that's going to some, that that's going to make them feel better to move on from that Mm -hmm. and just separate. And, you know, so I think that's kind of like an interesting, um, you know, it's cool to see the data behind that because I think that's a lot of people's instinctive reactions. We probably have no clue why, but I think that Mm -hmm. like, you know, is a very cool way of like being able to quantify the, the reactions and the psychology and everything that's happening. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like that's the whole thing is like, all right, let's go out and have some drinks and say all the reasons that we didn't like this person and the yeah. ways that you're, they're not good enough for you. And, you know, and it's, and the things that hurt are when you come across like that note that, that they gave you and you tucked away or that thing they gave you, um, you know, and, and which is such an interesting thing. It's like when you come back down to earth from that, that positive state. And so, yeah, you know, as much as, you know, researchers like to say, okay, trust only in the data. And that's so important. And also humans have been around for a long time and we haven't had like SPSS and, and, you know, the ability to analyze data, um, the ways we do now, but so we've had to learn through other things. And so, um, as much as it's always important to test things empirically, I think, like you said, the lived experience is important. And there's a part of us like that we know what we need. And, um, the fact that that's kind of a universal, or at least within like our culture thing of, yeah. okay, this person's gone, you know, we're going <laughs> sure to me. I'm unfollowing them on Instagram. <laughs> Heck yeah. Well, that's the thing too, of like that withdrawal, like that from that addiction thing, right. It's yeah. like, you just want to cut that out and you do not want to have anything that's going to delete all your yeah. photos together, like all of it. And like, yeah, like we know that that is not good for us. So that's why we go through and we do that. So yeah, it's right there. It's baked into us as people. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's also where it's like, you know, how people will reach back out to the ex. It's like, it's you like treating it like a drug addiction and also grief process. But as far as, yeah. you know, if you or your friends are keep going back to something toxic, it's like, you really got to do the, treat it like it's a drug and just stay, stay away. I wonder, this is just me just like totally thinking out loud. (laughs) I wonder if there's any kind of like correlation between people who are like habitual, um, like go back to the old relationships and like addictive personality, Mm. you know, like where people who want to like relationship relapse constantly, like turn back to that ex that they've never gotten over. If they're like more predisposed to more addictive, you know, things to them. Mm. That's just, you know, just putting that out there into the, into the space. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would be really interesting to look at. Cause I think I'd see that and like, well, yeah, impulsivity and the, really the, the dopamine of like getting that instant pleasure, which is what we see with people who are impulsive or people who might be more likely to, um, use substances on like the higher end. Um, mm-hmm. that's a really 
interesting thought that actually, even you said that, I think I have a data set that has an impulsivity measure from like years ago with this. I might take a look at it after this. <laughs> I can dig it up. That's awesome. Brendan's trying to co-author with you. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But yeah, that yeah. is super interesting thinking about like different um, like neural connections and how people's brains are wired. Like how far does that translate into different things? Because mm-hmm. I mean, even how you were thinking about this like instinctual piece of like rationalizing or like doing these things to to really get away from this negative emotion. I was thinking about like how if I had a test that I didn't like, I'm like, oh, screw that test. Like it, it sucked. It didn't measure anything well or like it didn't assess my knowledge or that teacher sucks, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's so funny how that's such a gut reaction. Yeah. Yep. And that's a um, part of a, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the theory, but that idea that, yeah, when it, uh, not cognitive dissonance, but that does play a role, but that idea of like, all right, that doesn't align with, with my reality um, or the real world doesn't align with, align with my ideal situation. So I'm just going to reject the other piece so I could live in the reality that suits me. Right. And maybe yeah. it was a stupid test for the record. As someone who makes <laughs> tests imperfectly, <laughs> it's quite possible. Yes. Um, so I, I know also something that we discussed a little bit, a topic um, that you are pretty passionate about is just um, like not knowing how to kind of navigate grad school, not knowing how to apply and the, the stresses that come from it. Um, I guess generally, like just what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, those, my thoughts on that have changed and are like changing a lot continue to since doing TikTok, because that's what I'm hearing from a lot of students who they'll message me asking for advice or, um, you know, realizing that certain experiences I've had or things that other people have had. Um, and so, you know, I think there that a lot of students are underserved in getting information on how to apply to grad school, how to succeed in, in grad school. And that's really unfortunate. And, you know, I don't think there are I mean, there are a lot of great resources out there and it's a shame that it, that you have to figure out how to find them yourself and it's so varied, but, you know, so I guess my what one thought I have is just, I wish that people had more access to talk with professors, I think is something that seems pretty clear is that access to people who are in academia professionally is just not really strong. Um, and I think it's really a shame that a lot of people don't apply um, to grad school because they don't think they're good enough. And that's one of those pieces like with you, Brennan, now you were saying earlier that, you know, you have that positive self-talk. I definitely deal with imposter syndrome. And I think the way it comes up for me, I've realized is like, I don't notice the thoughts as much. It's more of like, oh, I don't know how to do this quite. I'm going to avoid it a bit. But as far as like deserving to be in grad school, that was never a question to me. I've always really felt about my belongingness from an academic standpoint. And so it's been really, it's been sad to see students feel like they don't belong. And so one thing is just like wanting to encourage people to apply, you know, um, most people in PhD programs, yes, you get research experience beforehand, but that research experience pales in comparison to what you get once, you know, you're there. And, um, you really can't know everything when you get to grad school, because the point of grad school is you learn. So, you know, one thing I've just message I've wanted to get out there is just that everyone should totally apply. And then also importantly, that um, with grad school, especially PhD programs, there are not a lot, there are not enough spots for the number of qualified P- 
people. So if you get in, it's not a fluke because if you get into a PhD program, you have surpassed a lot of people who are so bright and you've been chosen and there's just, it's just, can you, it cannot be a fluke. You cannot fool that many people. Um, and if you don't get in for that same reason, like it's, it doesn't mean that it's your fault by any means. It's this real problem where there just are not enough spots. Like the people, um, who I interviewed, I could have picked a name out of a hat and been thrilled and then been like, this is the person I'm going to give an offer to, you know, and I'm also really excited about the person who currently has an offer that they're weighing. And, and if they come here, I will be ecstatic. And, you know, but it, so just as an aside, you know, I think we place a lot of things on our worth um, and, you know, our performance. And it's just like, it's just so competitive. So it's like both of those pieces like apply because you totally can belong. And just because you don't get in, especially the first time, doesn't mean that you, that you don't belong either. Um, just kind of this, the current state of, of affairs. So those have been a, a, and then as far as how to succeed in grad school, um, you know, I think having a really great mentor is important and taking advice from other students who you trust and whose ego is less attached to the advice they're giving you. Don't talk, don't let your cohort carry what your cohort says, the grain of salt. Cause I noticed the first year grad school people come in and they're like, Oh, like they all, everyone thinks that they're a hotshot when they start their PhD <laughs> program because like they worked in like this one lab with this one person um, meanwhile, like, yes, they might be a big name in like their little area, but that does not mean that I've ever heard of them or care. And also you might've just done like literature reviews. So calm down, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, you know, you'll see these things of like people being like, oh, I worked this much. And it's like, who cares how much you worked? It's just about what you got done. Like where are your skills and taking care of yourselves. And so I see this like thing where everyone tries to almost burn out before the other people to prove that they're somehow you know, better, but everyone's feeling insecure because no one has publications or they do, they have like one and they usually were a co-author on something like with their, like, so essentially, you know, it's, I think it's important to be honest with each other, with your, if you can, with your cohort about the fact that it's hard, um, give yourself permission to grow. If you knew how to do everything already, I'd be out of a job, you know, um, and it's a marathon, not a race. Uh, you know, it takes years to get the return, the publication return on your research investments. And so, you know, you have often the first few years, this hang, this lack of publications hanging over your head, but then they start to drop, um, you know, around like your third, fourth year, it starts to really pick up. And, and, and that's, I guess that number, take that with a grain of salt too, because everyone's path is different. Um, but, you know, you have to sit a lot with the lack of the, the, external accomplishment or, you know, the plaque to hang up on your wall or the line to put on your CV. And so letting that be okay, just giving yourself permission to be learning and to be growing, um, I think is, is so important and being treating it like a marathon, not a race. So that by the time you get to that point where the return on your time, on your investment of, in your research starts to turn around that you're not like burnt out at that point, you know? That's that was cool. awesome. Yeah. That, I think that's yeah. great advice. Yeah. We touched, you touched on one thing in there and as we're like kind of starting to get towards the end of our discussion and, and all that, I do want to make sure that we briefly give you the floor to talk a little bit about stigma 
um, mm. because we didn't really hit on it too much, but I know sure. it's an area that you focus on and, you know, whether it's stigma of like, oh, I'm not good enough for grad school. Cause like you have to be some brainiac or whatever, or, you know, the other types of social stigma that a lot of people face, um, maybe could you just share a little bit of some of the research and things that you found in the, uh, in your work when it comes to stigma? Yes, that's a great question. And I haven't done any work on stigma within the context of graduate school. Um, but, you know, I think the there is a connection to our worth as a person and, and that internalized. So some of the work, so I, Mike, should I talk about my work or the thing that's most relevant to this conversation? Probably the latter, but the, we tend to internalize messages from society in a way that like, if there's a stigma towards seeking help, then I will feel stigma towards myself if I seek help. And that internal stigma, that really drives the bus of our behavior and what we do. Um, and so if, to take that work and to translate it to, um, and so for example, with the help seeking research, that self stigma, um, what we find is that the societal or perceptions of external stigma, the way that it influences behavior or intention to seek help is through its impact, through cultivating that self stigma, that self stigma of seeking help. That's the major, you know, the major, the major piece. And, um, and so, you know, for a lot of people, so this is me some conjecture and applying it to, let's say, grad student context is, and, and even an earlier, way earlier part of our conversation is if we have an identity, let's say, as being smart or being gifted, then we can be really uh, nervous about losing that. And, and I don't know what the stigma would be called if there's a stigma of being average, maybe, or I see that fear a lot with people. Um, and to the point where like someone won't seek help, there'll be a fear of actually, it really does play out of asking for help, for example, in grad school or doing something that's wrong. Right. Um, I remember working with a client who just wouldn't, he really didn't want to tell his advisor that he didn't know how to do this analysis, which was totally developmentally appropriate to not know how to do. But then I said he avoided it and had this problem where his advisor was thinking he did, wasn't motivated or wasn't doing work, but he just wasn't asking for help because of some of those pieces of like, what is that internalized stigma? Um, but then we see like with gifted students, it's really interesting. And this is me. We're at the end. So I'm just tangenting all over the place, but with, <laughs> here we go. So I think this finding is kind of interesting. So on one IQ assessment, uh, there's a measure of processing speed where, um, you see an image, uh, you have like a pamphlet and you see a little, like a picture. And then like, I think maybe like four or five other pictures. And then you're supposed to write a slash, like when you see the same picture. And if you don't, then you write, um, then you slash the, like, there's a box I think that's indicates like, it's just not here. And, um, and interestingly, a lot of gifted students will score lower because they're afraid of being wrong when actually it's more like it's, it's, and it's something where normally you don't actually finish by the time the timer is up. It's rare to get to the end. Um, and it's not that gifted people are, uh, slower processors, but it's the way that that anxiety and that need to be right plays out in the test. And so I think when you get to grad school, you have all these people who have been told that they're the smartest in the class 
And all of a sudden now you're with a bunch of people who are the smartest in the class. And I think there's some type of, maybe it's around like asking for help or around something related to that identity around their intelligence that they've internalized and doing something that flies in the face of that. So I'm not sure if it's quite stigma, but they might also be worried about experiencing stigma from their peers of like being average or not being perfect, you know, but I'm also kind of thinking out loud here, but I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. I kind of like think about the, the stigma thing too. And like, you know, sometimes I think I have what I'll, I'll call it like a perceived stigma. Like there's an expectation on me that really doesn't exist. I don't know if there's an actual name for that name for that, but yeah, like, and sometimes it just is a matter of me, like coming to terms with the fact that like, you know, this is me like being negative in a way, you know, this is the, not the self-kindness side, but like in just a, in a way to further validate is like, sometimes it's like, no one really cares if I mess up at this, you know what I mean? Like nobody really cares if I fail this test or if I don't get a, you know, piece of research published on my first try or, you know, whatever it is. And I think that that's like a, a big thing that like, for me, that has been a benefit is just like trying to figure out if like, if there's really even a legitimate stigma around what I'm trying to do or that around something that I'm, that's going on in my life, or if it's just something that I'm just like, if I'm, if society like talks about it, like it's this big, like stigma or pressure to be on people, but in reality, nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, so that, yeah. So that's yeah. been, that's been with the stigma piece. I think that's been something for me that's been um, big, like, and, you know, I'll, I'll even turn it around back onto some of the work that I think you did say you do is like on people, the stigma around people looking for help. Like, I don't know what it was, but around, like there was a, from a fairly young age, I would say relatively, I don't know that it's, you know, young in the big picture, but like somewhere around like sophomore year of high school, I was just like, I don't really care if people think I'm done. I need, like, if I can't get something finished or like, I need help on it, like, I'm literally not going to understand if I don't ask. So even if somebody did think that I was stupid because I asked a question or whatever, like I have to ask, like, even if there is a stigma around that, like I need help with stuff. Like there's the expectation that I would just know everything and have been exposed to everything in the world is silly. <laughs> so come on, Brennan, yeah, pick it up. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, like that's definitely one stigma that I've, it was, it was like an aha moment where I was like, why would I not ask for help? That just seems so wrong. So yeah, that's definitely, um, you know, my experience with the stigma piece. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, from a, like a clinical standpoint, I always found that supervisors when I was a grad student trusted me partially because I would ask. And, and yeah. I know I, it's, it's the people who never ask for help, where I'm just like <laughs> that, that then I get concerned that I feel like I have to watch. Cause there's no way you can know everything. And it's funny where you were saying about the, like, no one cares. That's sometimes what I'll tell people when they get worried about like, asking a professor for an extension actually is a good one. We're like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, you think you're that important to your professor, like in their life, you know, like, do you think that you're, and as, and I realize that might sound like could come off the wrong way, but it's this idea of like, we all have, we're all mostly focused on ourselves and a student getting an extension on a paper or like needing that is like, okay, that's fine. Like I, I am not like this idea of that, that the student could impact 
like my data at this large scale, you know, to me, it's like, I'll think about the fact that in a hundred years, no one's going to know who I am, you know, right. I'll have, I, yeah. right. So like, why am I living? And I say this, in the wind. Yeah. You know, so I, I, or like stigma around leaving uh, academia people talk about like who actually really cares. Like, even if there's someone you judge for something, do you go home and sit at the dinner table and think about what that person did? Like, no, and they're not going to think about you either. And now I say this, but in practice, I am still working on, you know, moving through those pieces, but it's like one of the most like, uh, uh, not relaxing, but like helping me let go is just reminding myself of like my own lack of importance to other people, but in a way that's empowering, you know? Yeah. 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 No. And that's Mm -hmm. like, you know, just to bring it back to the book meditations, like the stoic philosophy stuff, like that's what I love about it is like, it's, it's kind of the balance, right? It's a, such a, like a harsh statement that is such a freeing statement. Yes. And it's holding both. Like you said. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. This is really cool just to hear about, um, like the process of stigma. Cause I, of course the word gets thrown around all the time, but I don't think there's a stigma around the word stigma. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there is. Cause I don't think that we go as much to say that like the reason it exists is because we internalize what like the responses or what happens. Um, and yeah, I, it's, it's so challenging and can be so tough because we, it's so easy to think that like we need to present so well especially like you're saying in a graduate program like you need to be this smart person because people are holding you to this high standard when in reality nobody knows what they're doing most of the time (laughs) like everybody's an imposter and that's that's fine um and that balance is hard but yeah it's so true that like you don't know something you have to ask a question and of course like i'm still trying to practice that myself I think I need to start asking Brennan, like, what's the trick? There, so? there may be no more truer purpose to even going into grad school in the first place than to ask a ton of questions, right? right. Like, why else are you there? That's such a great point. I mean, especially like if you're doing research, like that research is asking and answering yes. questions. <laughs> like that's, yeah, that's why I always love my advisor would be like, if you knew everything already, I'd be out of a job. Like, what would be my purpose? Like, literally, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. Yeah. That's right. Okay, well, here, I don't know this, and I don't know this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think with that piece of, like, Nick, we said, of, like, what is stigma? Like, I forget that we don't really talk about that part, and it's important to name, like, and there are different definitions out there, but, you know, stigma is pretty much when people don't align with values-driven expectations. And they're often arbitrary and, you know, and we see them change over time, right? Like how um, it was okay in a lot lot of mainstream ways to be homophobic like 10 years ago. Um, And now, you know, mainstream wise, it's like, it's not. Um, And just like the ways that, yeah, like, so it's really like cultural norms intersecting with values, those expectations, which then we internalize and apply to ourselves and um, in ways that, are detrimental. And it's that balance of like not wanting to be completely rejected, um, but also needing to live our own, our own lives. And kind of like we were saying, like in a lot of these cases, especially the pieces that we've internalized, like we're often not going to be rejected. Now there are things with like sexual orientation where 
yeah, people do run risks. And even though the world is better now than it was before, there are also people whose families or where they live, you know, in rural America where it's not safe. Um, and I think that's kind of the the sad reality in certain places and that dance you play of like, where does it align with reality and where doesn't it, especially when we get these messages on this like much larger scale because of how media, you know, can reach far places. But, you know, as long as we continue to have these conversations and dismantle them, we can hopefully uh, decrease the extent to which they impact and inhibit, you know, us being our best, most authentic selves, I guess. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. It is pretty crazy to think just about how detrimental it can be when it is really socially accepted when there's something that's toxic. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. It's like, I tell my clients often, especially the, like when I work with um, folks struggling with their sexuality or their gender identity, or maybe they're not even struggling with it, but the people around them are It's like, you know, you and I never should have met, right? Like this is not your problem. This is everyone around you um, being utterly ridiculous. And, you know, I'm here to help you cope with that. And I'm happy to have met you because you're a beautiful soul. And it's, this is really the dumbest thing that we're sitting in a room together. Cause if anything, it's the other people that I should be meeting with um, and helping them get over their, their judgment, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's really, yeah. I yeah. just, even just you saying that I heard a quote today that was like, if you were the only person on the planet, you'd probably be ridiculously happy because like, they're, <laughs> like you wouldn't have anybody's problems like weighing down on you. Like you would just, and you wouldn't know anything else. So like your natural state would just be like to be happy with the situation you're in. And like, just like exactly what you're saying, like, these are other people's problems that are being, you know, infiltrating everybody's lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like a, that's like an empowering way to think about it for people is like, yeah, like this, there's nothing wrong with me. Like, this isn't an issue. This is just other people in the, in these cases where it's like, they're, you know, bringing their, you know, biases into my life, but that doesn't mean it's my problem. Exactly. That's yeah. why, like, I love clinically working with uh, university students as well. And this is my non-research part of my life because um, that's a stage where, you know, they've left the nest and are discovering like who they really are and what really matters to them and taking the positive things from their past with them and also realizing, oh, wait a minute, some of those forces that have been holding me back from being who I am, I can let go of those. And so it's so exciting to, to just like kind of be along for the ride as people discover themselves and give them permission to, you know, discover and be themselves, which I feel like is also what life's all about. Yep. When you can do right. It. Yeah. That's yeah. such a huge piece of like where there's a transformation and identity or like a solidification maybe. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. This has been really awesome. I, I have really a last minute this. trivia question for you. Oh, I've been oh, gosh, terrible at trivia. Let's do it. Well, no, it's more of like a, like, let's just get the professor's opinion. Okay, All right. Let's so do you it. have lived in coastal Florida or not, I'm not sure if it was coastal, but you lived in like what's widely known as a beach town or a beach mm -hmm. state, right? Yep. Sunshine state. You've lived in New York city. You said uh, or New York or area. The, Mm -hmm. Upstate, upstate New York. Upstate. So, but so I'm sure you, the, the you know, middle, people, bottom third of the state, but in New York City. And people drive into the city upstate. all the time, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was like yeah. literally an hour and a half drive from the city yeah. train away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You said Iowa. So you've lived in the Midwest, like the plains, and now you live in mountainous forest town. So you've <laughs> literally covered the absolute spectrum of all places to live. What is your favorite? 
if I took out the, you know, that I miss my family part. Um, and even if I include that Colorado for sure, Yeah. you know, cool. Yeah. And I'll tell, yeah. And I'll tell you why Florida is great with the sunshine. What I love about Colorado mountains are beautiful. The lack of, or the, the, the lack of humidity is great where I live, even though like the, the winters they're temperate. So like it was like in the sixties yesterday, even though it snowed, like in the last couple of weeks, blue skies, which are way better than gray mental health wise for me. And then also within the topic of today with the stigma piece is I am surrounded by way more queer people than ever before. And so I found it easier to be myself and I've experienced a level of like self-acceptance that I just have not when I've just been surrounded by straight people, no offense. I don't know your identities, but, um, you know, and so I think it's both from the, like the weather standpoint, the values, the outdoors activities, and just the, the queer affirmation is, yeah, I'd say Colorado is my favorite. And then the key is having parents in Florida that you can visit. Yeah, there you go. I love it. Yeah. My uncle lives in, and my uncle and aunt live in Castle Rock. And so I've been out to view them and it, like, you just can't beat the beauty of being out there in, in Colorado. It's so cool. So amazing. Yeah. I don't blame oh, you. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Great. Cool. Yeah. I need to go. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. This has gone like, I, I mean, I don't even know what time it is. Oh either. yeah. Wow. This is, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. A 15. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. This thank you. Yes. So much. Yeah. It's thanks for having Such me. an easy conversation to have. Thank you for like being such a open and willing participant in this conversation too. It made it so enjoyable for both of us, I think. Yeah, no problem. And thanks for, you know, your questions were great. And thanks for creating a space where, you know, I felt like I could be like, all right, here's, uh, here's everything, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, yeah, yeah, it's been really great talking with you guys. This is a really fun show. I love what you're doing. And, um, thank you. Yeah. Great to meet you both. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you too.